This audio teaching is provided by Segula.net. You are listening to our study series on Luke Acts. All right, welcome to session 21. We're going to be looking this week at Acts 16 and following. Uh, maybe we'll uh, catch on the tail end of Acts 15 there. So the last two sessions were focused on Acts 15. I apologize for spending a disproportionate amount of time on that one chapter in this series. I guess my excuse is that over the past year, I I have spent a disproportionate amount of time studying and writing about that chapter. So uh, that's why we ended up spending two sessions just on that chapter. And then uh, a lot of other sections we've only skimmed through, but Anyway, I hope it's uh, helpful for our overall aims of this series, which is looking at God's precepts, God's people, and God's plan in Luke-Acts. So uh, Acts 15 definitely has a lot to do with our understanding of Torah and the role of Torah in uh, in Luke-Acts. What is Luke's attitude towards Torah, what's he trying to convey here? So today, uh, my my goal is to try and get through the rest of Luke-Acts in, I guess after this session, I'll know better. We'll see how much material we get through, but I'm hoping if we get all the way through Paul's first and second, or sorry, Paul's second and third missionary journeys, then uh, we might be able to finish up the rest of the book of Acts next session, but there there may be another session in between or so. We'll see how it goes. But our main focus today is going to be on the two, these these last two missionary journeys. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Paul's first missionary journey. If you recall, uh, let me pull up the map here. If you recall, Paul's Uh, Paul's first missionary journey, he goes with Barnabas to the island of Cyprus. They come up to Pamphylia, Perga and Pamphylia, and there Mark leaves them, John Mark. That's this down arrow going here. Then they go up into Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. This this whole area, a a lot of what they were uh, doing was in a broad region called Galatia. So when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatians, he's writing to these communities that he helped found in uh, his first missionary journey. And now according to what I think is the best reckoning of chronology, Paul would have written uh, Paul, the book of Galatians was probably the first epistle that Paul wrote. Uh, there are some people who would disagree with me on that, but I, I think that makes sense. Uh, if you place the book of Galatians prior to Acts 15, uh, then he would have written that book after his first missionary journey and before his second missionary journey. So, He's, he's gone, he's founded these communities, then he hears rumors about these people who have come in and started teaching them that you cannot be saved unless you become circumcised. The exact same thing that 
later happens in Antioch. And then Paul and Barnabas end up arguing with these Judean teachers in Antioch about this issue, go down to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. And Jerusalem's way down here on the map. And they end up, um, the council agrees with Paul and Barnabas. See, Jerusalem is way down here. So that's a bit of a bit of a trek for them. Um, the council agrees with Paul and Barnabas and sends this letter. Uh, today, we're going to see how for Paul's second missionary journey, he goes back. He, he wants to go back to these same communities that they started earlier. Uh, and Barnabas does too, right? So it makes sense then that, you know, now Paul has additional uh, evidence that what he was arguing in the book of Galatians is true. Gentiles do not need to become circumcised in order to be saved. And that's, that's really the thrust of Galatians. A lot of people will interpret Galatians as though Paul's making a concerted uh, overall attack against Judaism, against Torah keeping in general, but that's not the case. It's actually dealing just with this issue of circumcision, which I argued is precisely what Acts 15 dealt with as well. The fact that the book of Galatians never mentions this uh, Jerusalem council or the apostolic decree, in my mind, suggests that the book of Galatians was written first, then Acts 15 takes place, and now Paul has this letter and he wants to go back and deliver it. So let's um, let's dive in and read from the tail end of Acts 15. So could I get a volunteer? We're going to read Acts 15 from verse 36 to 41. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so yeah, so we're starting out the the apostles. Oh, sorry, uh, Paul and Barnabas and uh, these other two guys from Judea have just finally come back to Antioch. So Acts fifteen begins in Antioch. And then it ends in Antioch, and in between they go down to Jerusalem, right? So they've come back to Antioch, and, and the people in Jerusalem sent with them these two guys, um, Judas called Barsabbas, and a guy named Silas. These two go with them up to Antioch, and uh, Silas apparently stays in Antioch, um, because then Paul chose him to go with him on 
on this journey. So uh, these verses, uh, re remember, Antioch is serving as like the headquarters for the Gentile mission, right? It's like the home away from home, you know, away from Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem is kind of like the headquarters of the global uh, kehilah, the global ecclesia, and uh, Antioch is serving as like this outpost, sort of, from where uh, Paul and Barnabas go on these on these missions. So uh, this this little episode here shares how Paul came to have a different traveling companion. Because if you remember in his first journey, his first mission, it's Paul and Barnabas. They're they're uh, you know the dynamic duo going around and and preaching and sharing the gospel and having these incredible encounters. Uh, well, here they part ways, right? You remember how Mark left, right? If we go back to our map, um, they're on their way. They, they go through uh, the island of Cyprus. They get to Pamphylia and Mark leaves them. It doesn't say why Mark left them. And Luke doesn't really go into any more details about that. As we read in Paul's epistles, eventually uh, he and Mark did become reconciled and, and uh, there's, there's more in store for Mark. Uh, he even went on to write a gospel, the gospel of Mark. <laughs> so uh, we don't know a whole ton more about him than that. But anyway, at this stage, uh, Paul didn't want to take him with them. So what happens is, uh, let's just switch to the second journey. Okay, so Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus, and then we don't hear any more about them in, in uh, Luke, in Acts. Luke doesn't tell us any more about them, but Paul, uh, sorry, Barnabas and Mark uh, carry on what they started over here, whereas... Paul and Silas end up going on land up back into Galatia, right? So it's kind of hard to see because this is really zoomed out. Uh, but you can see they're, they're going all the way through Asia Minor. Eventually, they'll go up into Macedonia, which is up here, north of Greece. Then they'll cut down into Greece, go to Athens and Corinth, back across over to Ephesus in Asia Minor, and then down to Jerusalem, and finally back to Antioch. Uh, so this, this is a rough overview of the second journey. Um, as we'll see, so first Paul and Silas, they leave Antioch and they go up to Tarsus, which is famous as the hometown of, of Paul. Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, right? He's from Tarsus, which is uh, um, no little city in Cilicia, the Roman province of Cilicia. Uh, Tarsus was uh, one of three big university cities in that day. There is Tarsus, Athens, and Alexandria. So Paul was a learned uh, person. He was very well learned in Torah, and he also had quite a bit of knowledge of Greek culture and, and even some Greek literature, as we'll see. 
so they went through Paul's hometown and then back up into Galatia, Derby and Lystra and these places. Uh, we'll pick up on that in just a second. So, yeah, so Silas was a big asset for Paul on this trip, right? Because if we uh, go back to verse 22 of chapter 15, this is when they conclude the Jerusalem Council and the apostles decide to send, uh, choose men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they choose Judas, Barsabbas, and Silas. These were leading men among the brothers. So Silas is, is not just a Joe Blow. He's like a leading man among the brothers. Uh, and so this is, this is going to be corroborating uh, the message of the Jerusalem council, right? They've got the letter with them. They've got Silas from Jerusalem coming with them, co coming with him as well, right? And, and they're always going two by two, right? Yeshua set that pattern in the gospels, sending out his apostles two by two. We see in the book of Acts, they're following that same pattern. Uh, when Paul and Barnabas separate, they're not just like, well, let's just each go by ourselves. Uh, they, they each take someone else with them. And uh, we're going to see Paul will end up having quite a few traveling companions with him as, as it carries on. All right, let's, um, let's jump down to chapter 16. And we're going to read the first little bit here. Let's read chapter 16, verses 1 to 5. And again, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Someone be able to do that? Okay, so Paul came also to Derby and Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their, their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Great, thanks. So here they are in these cities of Galatia, uh, delivering for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. They're delivering the apostolic decree to these people in Galatia, right? So this is going to follow up on Paul's epistle to the Galatians and, and hopefully settle this issue once and for all, uh, that these people aren't going to be teaching them that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, so we have this interesting uh, little episode here. Uh, by the way, anyone remember what happened the last time Paul was in Lystra? We go back to chapter 14, I believe it is. Paul and Barnabas come to Lystra. And it seems like in, in Lystra, there wasn't a Jewish synagogue there. There must not have been a very many Jews in that area. Uh, but apparently there were some. But anyway, uh, and it says this is one of the few places where it doesn't say Paul went into the synagogue and began teaching the Jews. Instead, he's teaching in the marketplace. And that's one of the only times where Paul is just out preaching to a crowd that uh, 
are apparently mostly pagans, right? And he performs a healing and they start to think that he's a god and and then they change their mind and they stone him. So anyway, that's that'll happen at Lystra. Well, apparently one of the people at Lystra, uh, one of the families who became believers was uh, this family, uh, Lois and Eunice and the son, Timothy. Which is it? Was Lois the, the mother and Eunice the grandmother or the other way around? Uh, forget which way it is, but in mentions their names in First Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy and talking about how your mother and your grandmother had this faith, and then you became a believer as well. So on uh, Paul's first visit through, Timothy may have been a teenager. Now he might be a bit older, a young man. Paul circumcises him. You know, this has been a perplexing thing for so many interpreters. Why on earth would Paul circumcise Timothy? And especially, uh, this, this comes right after chapter 15, right? We just get through chapter 15 and we're barely into chapter 16 and right away Paul is circumcising someone. <laughs> you know, for, for a lot of interpreters, that doesn't make sense because they assume, well, chapter 15 settled the issue, circumcision is no longer valid. It's all been done away with. I think Luke's point is to demonstrate that that's not what Acts 15 means, right? That Acts 15 doesn't mean that circumcision no longer has any role to play for believers. All right, so Timothy, he's the son of a Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. Um, so does that make him a Jew or a Gentile? There's a uh, debate about that, an ongoing debate. Uh, some scholars have assumed that, well, you know, maybe the matrilineal principle, which is the the modern Jewish uh, halakha, that if your mother if your mother was Jewish, then you're Jewish. Um, some people just say, well, that must have been in place back then, so Timothy was Jewish. Uh, a lot of scholars are going to say, no, actually, the evidence points in the opposite direction. We have no evidence of anyone deeming someone who to be Jewish just because they had a Jewish mother. And they're going to say, actually, uh, instead, we see a patrilineal principle. If you have a Jewish father, then you're Jewish. Um, it's really not clear from the passage, is it? Right. Uh, if if. Luke expected us to, to see Timothy as Jewish because he had a Jewish mom. It's a little bit curious that he doesn't say that, right? It says, it doesn't say he took Timothy and circumcised him because he had a Jewish mom. It says he took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places all knew that his father was a Greek. So what's going on here, right? Uh, well, Luke's not entirely clear, but it sounds like the big reason for circumcising him is that his father didn't do it. For whatever reason, his father did not uh, want his son to be circumcised. It appears his father was not a God-fearer. Uh, his father was probably a pagan Greek, and we have no record of his father ever being mentioned as a believer anywhere, even in... in um, Paul's letters to Timothy, he mentions Timothy's mom and his grandma, but doesn't mention his uh, his dad. So 
possibly his dad died by then, but it doesn't seem that he was a believer or even a God-fearer. He was a, a pagan Greek, probably, uh, and was not in favor of circumcision. So he married a Jewish woman, but didn't want to have anything to do with the Jewish religion, apparently. Uh, but Timothy received a good upbringing from his mom and his grandmother, and he became a believer. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Anyway, I my take on it is that I think Timothy would have been viewed as a half Jew, <laughs> which is what he, he was, right? He wouldn't have been considered a full Jew or a full Gentile. He would have been just a hybrid, a half half breed, right? And so... In my opinion, the point is clear. If Paul is willing to circumcise a man whose Jewish status whose Jewish status is marginal at best, how much more would he encourage Jewish parents to circumcise their infant sons? And I think that moral of the story becomes clear when we get to chapter 21. We'll save that for later. Okay, let's skip down a bit. Um, so they go through Phrygia and Galatia. It's really interesting how it says they, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Not exactly sure what that would have looked like, but probably um, through prophecy, the Holy Spirit revealed either to Paul or to Barnabas or to someone else a message that they were not allowed to go into Bithynia. So going back to our map. So they're going through Phrygia. And Galatia, sorry, the scroll is really slow on this. Here we go. Um, they go through Galatia and Phrygia, but they're not allowed to go to the right. And then it says, um, oh, they, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, and then they were for, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Yeshua did not allow them. So. They're not being permitted to go to the left, to go into Asia, this area, or into Bithynia. They have to go straight from Phrygia up to Mysia, which is where we get to a town called Troas. Troas is an important town. Let's find out why. Go back to here. So they're, they're up in, uh, in Troas. And a vision appears to Paul in the night. So they, they just keep having all this direction from God about where there's where they can't go and then where they need to go. A man of Macedonia standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Uh, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had, God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Suddenly it changes. All throughout uh, before this, it's been third person plural. They went through the regions. They came up to Mysia. They went down to Troas. And suddenly after they get to Troas, it changes to we and us. The uh, author of Acts has entered into the story very discreetly. Uh, Luke is a very discreet, uh, modest writer. He's not, uh, doesn't talk about himself at all, but uh, just, you know, there he is. So, so apparently uh, Luke joins them at Troas, right? Uh, Troas may have been Luke's hometown. We're not 
we're not exactly sure, but it's uh, at Troas that suddenly the we passages start in the book of Acts. And they're going to continue up until we get to Philippi, and then they're going to stop. And then Paul's going to go on the rest of this journey, and it'll be all they, them, all third person. So what appears to have happened is on this journey, Luke joins them at Troas, travels with them as far as Philippi, and then stays in Philippi. We'll see in the next missionary journey, when they get to Philippi, suddenly the wee passages start again. So Luke joins up with them again from Philippi. All right. So let's go down to verse 16, where they get to Philippi. Here we have uh, an interesting uh, account of how they're they're looking for well, I guess we skipped over some of the how they're they're looking for a community of Jewish people and apparently there's no synagogue at this point in Philippi according to some sources the Jewish people may have been expelled out of Philippi and their synagogue synagogue confiscated and so there may have been a few Jewish people left around in the area and Paul goes out of the city to look for a place of prayer. Um, it says on verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we suppose there was a place of prayer. In uh, a lot of Jewish communities back then, if they did not have a building, a synagogue building to meet in, they would gather near a body of water by the sea, by a river, uh, something like that because that was a uh, flowing, especially flowing water, living water, the ocean, whatever. This was a source of uh, ritual purity, right? So this was uh, a place where they could do an immersion if they needed to. It was a place where they could, uh, you know, like a, a synagogue would often have a mikvah. A mikvah was an important place, uh, important part of the Jewish community, a vital part. If there was no mikvah, no synagogue, they would have to use a natural body of water. Uh, so that's why they would have a, a, a formal place of prayer there. They meet Lydia. Um, as it turns out, they don't encounter very many Jews here, or perhaps no Jews. Instead, they meet God-fearers, and Lydia is a worshiper of God. That means she's not Jewish, but she is a, a uh, non-Jewish follower of the God of Israel, right? And she becomes a believer. She and her household are baptized. And she's a uh, woman of means, an uh, affluent dealer in purple cloth. There's this incident where they heal, uh, they deliver this girl from demon possession who was fortune-telling through this demonic possession and her owners are not happy about it. They uh, bring them to the magistrate and accuse them of being Jews and disturbing the city. It sounds like there was a lot of anti-Semitism there, right? Accusing them of being Jews was <laughs> something that was supposed to make people not like them, right? Uh, they beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. You know, what's interesting when we get to the end of the chapter 
the people find out these guys were Roman citizens, right? Why? And, and that it was illegal for them to have beaten these Roman citizens and put them in chains. Uh, that was uh, something that could have gotten them in a lot of trouble for doing that. So the question is, how come Paul and Silas didn't say, hey, don't beat us, guys, we're Roman citizens? You know, is it, I mean, there's a couple possibilities. One possibility is that they just didn't have time or no one could hear them saying, stop, we're Roman citizens, and, and they just got beaten and thrown into prison anyway. Another possibility is that for whatever reason, God led them not to pull out the citizenship card and get this uh, uh, free, free, uh, get out of jail free pass, right? Uh, it, e in either case, God obviously orchestrated this for multiple reasons. First of all, we have uh, the story that follows of the Philippian jailer coming to faith and, and it having a big impact on the city. Another reason is, look at the example it's set for the Philippian believers. As we read about in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he talks about, you know, bearing up under, under uh, persecution. Uh, that would have meant a lot more to them having seen Paul go through that personally, right? Paul was practicing what he preached. He wasn't, uh, he didn't shy away from living out the example for others to follow. Um yeah, so we have this cool story about the earthquake in the prison and the the jailer ends up becoming a believer as well. Let's jump down to chapter 7. 17, sorry. Um, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, notice that it switches back to they. The we passages have ended. Apparently... Luke stayed in Philippi. All right. Um, so from Philippi, let's look at our map. They go off to Thessalonica and then to Berea. And from Berea, they send Paul down to Athens. And let's, let's pick up where they, where they go to Athens. Down in verse 16. Uh, let's go to verse 15. Uh, the, so those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So uh, Silas and Timothy remain in Berea. They're teaching the people there. The Bereans were very receptive to the message, right? So they remain there. But these other guys, they take Paul all the way down to Athens. And uh, while Paul is waiting for them in Athens, so he told Silas and Timothy to come soon, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You know, that's something. Because, like, uh, Paul was not a sheltered Jerusalemite, right? Paul was from, uh, from Tarsus. He had been trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Uh, so... He was a guy who straddled multiple cultures, multiple worlds, right? He was uh, quite quite well well learned and um, experienced in different cultures, different languages. Uh, but he's being provoked 
that the city is full of idols. I mean, I'm sure Paul had seen lots of idols in his lifetime, right? He, you know, in Tarsus, he's uh, exposed to Lot in all his other travels, he's exposed to Lot, even in uh, in Lystra, they're, they think he's a god and they're trying to sacrifice to him. So he's been exposed to a lot of paganism, right? But there's something about Athens that really troubles him, which is saying something. We, uh, he's uh, reasoning in the marketplaces and, and stuff. And uh, then there's these philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debating with him. And, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others say, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Yeshua and the resurrection. Now, this is actually a bit of a serious charge because introducing foreign worship, foreign gods, uh, or preaching against the gods in Athens could get you into serious trouble. I mean, look at what happened to Socrates. Socrates got tried and then executed for uh, a similar charge. Of course, that was hundreds of years before. But uh, this, this is a serious charge that's being made against Paul. Uh, then they invite him to the Areopagus, the place where you discuss new things, right? So here we get to verse 22. Uh, and I'd like to, I'd like us to read this passage. So maybe I'll get a volunteer. Would someone be willing to read Acts 17 verses 22 uh, let's see. Let's read all the way from verses 22 to 34. 1722. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, 
among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, so this is a really interesting sermon <laughs> that Paul preaches here. It's, uh, this is one of the few places where, again, Paul is preaching to a pagan audience, right? These are not God-fearers. These are not Jews. These are people with no prior uh, exposure to Judaism, as far as we can tell. So similar to Lystra, right? In Lystra, Paul's doing a similar thing. Uh, here, it's it's even more explicit, right? And And it actually gives the substance of what Paul actually said. So a couple things are interesting. Uh, one thing is I, I feel like there's a bit of a parallel between this and Stephen's speech in Acts chapter seven. It, it's almost like Paul is on trial here, uh, right? Just like um, Stephen was accused of certain things. And then he gives this speech to sort of dispel those accusations to defend himself against what were false accusations back then. Uh, here, it is, it's, not, it's not quite a trial, right? But, but there, is, there is a bit of an accusation against Paul here that he's bringing in, uh, trying to influence people to the worship of strange gods. Uh, his opening line here, I, I think, sort of refutes that accusation, right? He says uh, he <laughs> he found an altar to the unknown god. Apparently, there were a bunch of those in Athens in those days. They they were trying to cover all their bases, right? Because you don't want to offend any god, you don't want to leave any god out. So, let, just to be safe, let's make some altars to unknown gods. Well, so. Paul's tactic here in, in his message is, is clever. He, instead of saying, I'm, I'm preaching to you a uh, God you've never heard of before, he says, no, you, you guys already have an altar to this God. You just don't know who he is or what his name is. So I'm going to let you know about him. <laughs> so I'm far from bringing in new deities. I'm just trying to explain to you some of the gods you already worship or what, what, uh, the, a God that you already worship kind of thing. Uh, interesting way to to bring that in. When we get down to verses twenty, well, verse twenty-eight, Paul quotes from pagan philosophers, right? Uh, in him we move, in him we live and move and have our being. That is probably a quote from Epimenides of Crete, and then. For we are indeed his offspring, is from Aratus, his poem, uh, Phenomena. So why is Paul quoting this stuff? I mean, apparently, Paul knew some uh, Greek literature. And actually, in another passage, in one of Paul's epistles, he quotes from uh, this exact same poem from uh, Epimenides where he talks about how Cretans are lazy gluttons and drunkards or something like that. It's, it's from just a few lines down in the same poem. So uh, this, that was, that was apparently one of the poems that he knew, <laughs> um, probably learned it growing up in Tarsus, right? In part of his education there. 
there's a, you know, this entire speech is very tactful. Paul, be, he avoids direct references to Judaism, I think because that would get him in trouble if he did that here. Um, at the same time, he's he's trying to trying to connect with these guys where they're at, right? These are, I mean, he, these these guys are philosophers, right? These are a bit probably out of Paul's league uh, as far as learning in philosophical ideas goes. Um, what? Uh, but but there's a number of interesting things he brings out, right? So first of all, Paul emphasizes the fact that that God is transcendent, right? He's he's not something that you can confine to a figure that you can place in an idol, and he doesn't he doesn't need like humans to offer sacrifices to it so for, in order to eat and doesn't have all these human needs. He's transcendent. He made everything. He made, he made people, right? He made all mankind. And he's in, you know, instead of relying on humans to sustain him, he's the one that sustains humanity, right? He gives mankind life and breath and everything. Um, then he goes on to talk about how God made all these different peoples. And uh, it's interesting. He talks about how he, um, he gave them boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Uh, there's an interesting discussion in, uh, well, in Christian theology, the, the, people talk about the role of natural revelation, right? Uh, we, you know, natural revelation, specific revelation. God has revealed himself to humanity in various ways. One of the ways is through the world that he created. You look at nature, you look at, uh, you know, science, you look at all these things, all of these attest to God in one way or another, right? The heavens are telling the glory of God. Uh, Paul talks about in, Romans 2, how God's divine nature is clearly seen through the world that he created. Or, sorry, I think that's Romans chapter 1. Uh, so there's a sense in which God can, God is revealed through nature, natural revelation, it's called. Um, but natural revelation alone is not, uh, does not bring us to a saving knowledge of Yeshua. And I think Paul kind of hints at that here, right? He's not trying to say that through your philosophy, through these Greek philosophers here, you can come to, to know God. Uh, he's talking about, you know, it's, it's like groping in the darkness, really. Perhaps feeling their way toward him and finding him. It's like, you know, you might be able to hit on some truth by accident through nature alone. You might be able to hit on some of the truth of who God is, but, but it's, it's, a shot in the dark, right? God has also revealed himself to us specifically, right? Through his word, through the scriptures, through his son, Yeshua. And uh, through that, we can know him more accurately. So when he's, yeah, he's bringing in these other philosophers, but, but at the same time as, you know, it being uh, difficult to know God accurately through nature alone, he's not really far from us, right? 
and and I think Paul's trying to draw. He's drawing on both Stoic and Epicurean traditions, playing on on both sides of this philosophical debate, showing how you know. Well, yeah, you Stoics, you 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 got this right a little bit. You you were kind of right here. You Epicureans were kind of right here. Um, but then Paul takes that argument and and uses that to say why it's ludicrous to practice idolatry, right? He's not a being like gold or silver or stone. And then Paul brings in some things that start to show his, his true stripes, right? The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people to repent. So he talks about repentance. He talks about judging the world in righteousness. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. And suddenly, Paul starts to sound really weird <laughs> to these guys. And they start to mock when they hear the resurrection of the dead. But anyway, uh, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating um, little sermon that Paul, Paul gives here. He starts from what is more familiar to them and works his way towards what is more specific about what God has done through Yeshua and what God is about to do in judging the earth. And perhaps Luke intends us to see the results as underwhelming. It doesn't seem like there was outrageous results. I think Paul Paul uh, had better reception in the synagogue in Athens among the Jews and the God-fearers, and uh, that seems to be... Uh, th there was, a, you know, a couple people that became believers through this, though, amazingly. Uh, but, yeah, that Luke, just like in Lystra, you know, it seems like that that whole message was a bit of a failure, <laughs> trying to preach to these uh these pagans but at the same time there were believers that that uh accepted yeshua in in lystra and timothy was one of them all right um so after he leaves from athens he gets to corinth let's take a quick look at that in the map so from Athens to Corinth, it's not a big distance. Corinth is right on this little isthmus between these two parts of Greece. We've got the, uh, the Western Mediterranean Ocean here. Uh, there is a port in Corinth and it's at uh, Sencre, which made it an important, an important city because there's a lot of trade coming through here. Uh, you'd have ships coming through and they'd unload their stuff at Corinth. They'd haul it across uh, these six miles to the other port and let it go out into the Aegean Sea over here. So uh, it was a big, uh, a big deal. The Romans actually destroyed the original Corinth and then set up a new colony uh, around uh, 40 something BCE, something like that. So we get this episode in Corinth where uh, Paul, he, well, first he encounters Aquila and Priscilla, these Jewish believers from, uh, recently come from Italy. They were tent makers and they work with him. He becomes good friends with them. We, we uh, read about them in some of the different uh, epistles that Paul wrote. And he goes into the synagogue every Sabbath and 
eventually, after several months, he has this incident where they opposed and reviled him. It says he shook out his garments. This is verse 6 of Acts 18. He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I, I always think that's funny. Uh, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So we, we talked a bit about this passage uh, last time or the time before that. This is not talking about setting up a Christian church to rival the Jewish synagogue. Uh, if anything, here we've got a rival synagogue. We've got two different synagogues right next to each other uh, in the Jewish area of town, and they disagree on uh, their, you know, who the Messiah is. But uh, as far as we can tell, that you know, they were still having both meeting on Shabbat. They were both uh, perhaps having a similar style of service, uh, and. Then there's this incident, starting in verse 12, where the Jews make united tack on him. And by Jews here, it means the, uh, obviously, there were Jews that were part of his, you know, the community at Titius Justice's house as well. Uh, but this would be the religious Jewish leaders of that, uh, of Corinth, right? Perhaps even some who had come from Judea, who were acting as leaders there. They bring him before Gallio, and Gallio actually rules that the followers of Yeshua are a sect of Judaism, right? He says, since it's a matter of questions and words and names about your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. <laughs> so this ruling makes... Uh, does not treating Christianity as a separate religion from Judaism, but at this stage, uh, the followers of Yeshua are still part of Judaism as far as Gallio is concerned. Okay. Um, one thing I skipped here, I'll just mention it and we'll come back to it again when we get to the end of Acts. But notice how he says, Paul has this statement, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. We see this sort of statement three times in the book of Acts, where Paul says he's going to leave the Jewish community, he's leaving the Jews, and he's going to the Gentiles. We're going to have to talk more about the significance of that when we see it at the end of Acts, but yeah, I'll leave it at that. Okay, when we get down to verse 18... Uh, eventually Paul takes leave of the brothers from, from Corinth and he sets sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila and uh, they come to Sencre, he has his hair cut off, he was under a vow, he came to Ephesus and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. So uh, take a look at what's going on here. They're leaving uh, Corinth and he's on his way to Syria. Um, that's where Antioch is. And we'll see that in just a second. He takes a bit of a roundabout way to get to Syria. First, he comes to the port of Sencre to go by ship over to Asia Minor. And at Sencre, he has his hair cut because of a vow. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, so 
this is a Nazarite vow, right? What kind of vow in Torah do you take that involves cutting your hair? It's a Nazarite vow. So Paul has taken a Nazarite vow, goes over to Ephesus. From Ephesus, well, that's where he leaves Priscilla and Aquila. Then from Ephesus, he jumps down by ship. He's going to go all the way down to Caesarea, way down here. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the ecclesia and then went down to Antioch. So it's not entirely clear uh, if you didn't know what, you know, Luke has packed this in, in really tight language. Going up on a vas, what is that? make you think of Aliyah going up, right? Going up to Jerusalem. This is the standard way you talk about going up to Jerusalem. He went up and he greeted the ecclesia, meaning the assembly in Jerusalem. And then he uh, goes up to Antioch. Very next verse, after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Oh, now we're on to the third missionary journey. Luke doesn't uh, uh, stretch this out or, or make this very emphatic or anything, but uh, verse 22, he finally gets back to the headquarters, the Gentile mission. Very next verse, he's embarked on the third missionary journey. So a quick overview of that journey, and then we'll probably have to wrap it up here. Third missionary journey, this one's a little more complicated. As you can see, he starts out again at Antioch, he goes through Cilicia and Galatia again. This time he cuts over by land to Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he sends Timothy and Erastus up over to um, Macedonia, and he goes by land up through Troas over to Philippi. At Philippi, Luke joins them again. They go down back to Corinth, then back up by land through all these places, and eventually down to Jerusalem. This time, he never makes it back to Antioch. Um, this begins his once he gets down to Corinth, from Corinth, he begins his long final journey to Jerusalem. Okay. Um, just a couple quick things to highlight. I, I want to look at chapter 20, and we'll have to wrap it up after that. But if you go to Chapter 20, this is after an uproar in uh, a riot in Ephesus. Um, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made for him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Luke's language is uh, abbreviated here. There's a lot packed into these verses. But we've got, so he comes across through Macedonia, then down to Greece. Uh, we know from uh, other places that he 
made a, a visit to Corinth during that time. So when it says he went down to Greece, we know it for sure he went to Corinth. He may have gone to other places. And then Luke has this interesting thing. He says he was about to set sail for Syria, but his plans get thwarted because of a plot made against him by the Jews. So Luke gives us a little hint here that Paul's about to head back to Jerusalem. Um, he Instead, he takes the long route going through Macedonia, and it talks about all these people accompanied him, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, the Th uh, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secondus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy from Lystra, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. There's one person Luke doesn't mention in this list, Luke. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, so suddenly Luke has joined them, right? Then they come to Troas. We sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. There's a bunch of interesting stuff packed into these verses. Um, first of all, okay, they're keeping unleavened bread. The, the apostles, the believers are still observing the biblical calendar. They're still following God's calendar, right? Keeping the biblical festivals. Um, we see, like I said, Luke has joined them again uh, because Luke had been left at Philippi. Whoops, keep going to the wrong one. Luke had been left at Philippi. Now he's joined them again. And all these other people have joined them. And these other people go ahead of them to Troas, right? And Troas is someone's hometown. You know, like when you're driving on the highway and you drive past a small town and it says home of, and it lists some obscure person that you don't, you're not really familiar with, <laughs> who's supposed to be famous. Well, maybe, you know, they could have had a sign saying Troas, home of Luke. Uh, they, I'm sure they didn't, but uh, that's, that's where we first encounter Luke is at Troas. So now, now he's going back with them to, to what, is probably, uh, I'm suggesting, may have been his hometown. And it, Luke is gives us a lot of very interesting details when we get to um, get to that part. But we're going to have to save that for next time and pick up again in Troas. Thanks for listening to this audio teaching. The goal of Segula is to cast a vision for a healthy and mature Messianic Torah movement. This series of teachings on Luke Acts is made possible through the help of our ministry partners and supporters. For more information about this ministry, please visit www.segula.net. May the Father richly bless you as you seek Him, and together may we all become a glorious people in Messiah.